Last week, my neighbor's apartment was sealed shut. There is something terrible going on inside. Written by Kyle Harrison Until last week, I paid little attention to Apartment 23. I knew that an older Japanese man lived there. He sang something. I had seen his family stop by occasionally and drop off groceries, or just to check and make sure that he was alright. And then on Monday, right before Christmas, I walked out my front door and noticed that his door was completely sealed up by chains and wooden boards, nailed on either side, preventing any entry. I scratched my head in curiosity, wondering why I hadn't heard anyone in the hallway the night before. I knew that I was a heavy sleeper, but the amount of effort that had been put into sealing up his door was odd. Still, I tried not to think about it that much. I figured that he must have passed away and the super was going to clean his flat soon, and didn't want anyone to go in during the process. Maybe there was bed bugs or mold or something. I knew the building had problems with that before. I didn't realize there was a problem until I got home from work that evening and noticed that his family had stopped by and they were shouting in their native tongue through the door as though expecting a response. To my surprise, Mr. Heesong responded. I think I dropped my keys in surprise as I was right behind them, causing his daughter to notice me. You, neighbor to father, yeah? She asked. I fumbled and picked up the keys and smiled awkwardly. I felt bad that this was the first time that I had cared to have a conversation with them. Richard, is, is everything okay with your dad? I asked, pointing toward the door. He's very sick. We come bring food. The son said, gesturing toward a casserole that they had made. Oh... So then all of that is for quarantine, I guessed. He is very, very sick. No one can go in, the daughter insisted. How do you plan to give him the food then? I asked. They showed me a tiny slot at the bottom of the door, which looked like it was meant for a pet. And then they placed the food down there, before calling to their father that they had done so. Please, Mr. Richard, no matter what you hear, do not let him out, the daughter told me. I don't think I would be able to do that, even if I wanted to. I joked to her as I scratched my head in amazement. What exactly is he sick with? They didn't bother answering that one, which left me a little unsettled. Was I in danger of infection? I had never seen anyone take this much precaution, even with what's going on now. Was it a new strain? My curiosity won out, and after that, I decided to pay close attention to anything that happened across the hallway. It didn't take long for me to discover that whatever was going on was more dangerous than any virus, though. Again, I was coming home from work when I heard the sharp barking coming from inside his room. It sounded like a dog was fighting something and not winning. Instinctively, I felt compelled to ask him, 
Is everything all right? The barking stopped a moment later, and I heard the scrambling of feet. Yes, yes, all this fine here. Did my family bring me any food today? He asked. I looked around the floor, but didn't see any dishes. No, it doesn't look like it. Are you hungry? I was going to cook up some burgers anyway. Starving, he said in a raspy voice. He sounded like he was in a lot of pain. I'll make you one. Just give me a few. I went inside and started to cook the ground beef. Try not to be too worried about whatever he was going through. But when I came back out the door, I couldn't get a response from him to come get the food. Well, alright. I'll just leave it down here then. I said, setting the plate down near the slot in the door. A moment later, his hand snatched out, grabbed a hold of the plastic, and swung the food inside within mere seconds. It was so jarring, it caused me to shout in surprise. Well, you're welcome. I said nervously as I heard the low growl of the dog again. My mind replayed the scene over as I returned to my own flat. His arm hadn't looked human. What the heck was happening to this old man? The sounds got worse after that, growling and screaming worse than anything I had ever heard before. A few of the other neighbors were starting to complain, but it seemed like these super didn't want to cause any trouble. Whatever this is, it isn't natural. Best to just leave it alone, he told all of us. Unfortunately for me, that was easier said than done. When every time I passed his door, I heard Mr. Heesong begging for help. Please, please open the door. You must help me. If you have any decency at all, I need to just go, he shrieked. One morning, I saw his two children approach this time with what appeared to be a large jar, and I had enough, and demanding answers. It's been almost five days. Your father needs medical attention, or some kind of help. He sounds like he's dying. The two exchanged worried glances. We appreciate your concern, Mr. Richard, but this is a family matter. You should no longer involve yourself. The daughter told me, it's not just me. The whole apartment is talking. The super won't do anything, but if you don't take action soon, I'll call the police. I warn them. The two siblings bowed respectfully, placing the jar near the middle of the hallway and commenting, All will soon be resolved, Mr. Richard. Please trust us. They ran down the stairs before I got a chance to scold them again. In frustration, I kicked the jar over. A thousand angry hornets and beetles skittered out on the floor, festering over one another as a swarm. I stepped back in awe, watching as the insects fought one another, making low buzzing noises as the hornets stung at the smaller insects and the beetles fought hard to bite back. Was this what they planned to feed their father now? Had he completely lost all sense of humanity? 
After a few more seconds of watching only one insect, a large torn beetle seemed alive in the massive box, and a snarl from Mr. Hisang's door brought me back to reality. The rest of the bugs seemed to form one solid, fluid mass as I watched in fascination. And then I watched Hisong's long bony arm reach out from the slot, desperately trying to reach the bugs. Please, Mr. Richard, you must help me out, he begged again. I moved a few feet closer and used the tip of my boot to scoot the dish closer, giving him a chance to touch the fluid with his fingers. It is no use. I can never be free of this curse. He said sourly as he rested his arm and feet. I leaned closer, trying to look through the slot in the door to get a glimpse at my neighbor. Tell me what I can do to help, I offered. It wasn't right for his family to treat him this way, but I knew that if this bizarre ritual were to continue, more harm would likely come to everyone in the building. This needed to stop. The insects. I must consume their fluid. It is the only way that I may hope for the spirit to pass. I didn't know whether to question him or not, but decided to just do as he asked and ran to get a spoon. I knelt down and scooped up bits of the insects, offering them to him as he ate. He frequently paused between bites and thanked me. I simply must get out of here. You don't know what it is like experiencing this evil. I looked toward the door, feeling sorry for the old man. His family seemed intent on making him suffer based on some ancient belief. But no ritual would save him, I thought. He needs a doctor. Hold tight, I decided. My mind's made up about what I was going to do. I ran back to my apartment and looked through some of my tools. I don't have much that could help, but I figured even a small hand axe might do the job. Finally, I found an old one and ran back out to the door, instructing Mr. Hee-Song to stand away from the door. Immediately, I started to slam the blade against the wooden blocks, hitting it time and time again to break it apart. It took about seven minutes, but I didn't stop until I could jar the door open. Mr. Hisong, I'm coming inside. I told him as I used my brute force to push the rest of the way in. As soon as I got inside, the first thing that hit me was the overwhelming smell. It was as though something had died in the apartment. And then I saw exactly where it was coming from in the center of his room. There was a circle of stones leading up to what looked like the head of a dog. I couldn't see anything except for its swollen red tongue and gray fur. Yet somehow, despite not having a body, the creature opened its piercing black eyes and stared straight at me. It felt like I was looking into its soul. I started to feel this warm, heavy sensation of pain against my chest, and I dropped the axe and stumbled backward. My vision was growing blurry and I could hardly make out the naked figure of my neighbor chained to the wall. Hisong looked like skin and dried muscle attached to a bony outline, as though he had spent the last few days starving himself. As I slipped down to the floor, I could hear him repeating some strange chant in Japanese, 
and my head suddenly felt very dizzy. And then the entire room began to spin. It was a blur for me after that. I heard the muttering of voices as his family came, trying to decide what to do with me. I heard the whine from the bodiless dog as they fed it the final insect from that weird copper jar. And then I felt them drag me back across the hall to my own apartment. When I woke, I was shirtless, covered in sweat, and felt extremely dizzy. Immediately, I ran to the door to confront Mr. Heesong, but all evidence of his apartment ever being sealed up now had been cleared away. He was standing there, looking much healthier than he had for the last week, and humming to himself when he saw me. Ah, uh, Mr. Richard, I wanted to thank you, my friend, for helping me recover this past week. This virus was a nasty business, he told me. As he unlocked his door, I looked in the apartment for any sign of the horrible things that I had seen before my blackout, and scratched my head in confusion. I'm sorry. All of it feels like a lifetime ago for some reason. Are you okay now? He smiled and laughed. Never better, never better. I couldn't help but be jealous of his sudden recovery, especially considering how terrible that I was feeling right now. In fact, by that evening, I felt bedridden and called into work. It's gotten worse since then, so much so that I feel I've been hallucinating. I have seen that body this dog stalking me from the corners of my apartment, its mouth open and snarling, ready to pounce. I fear if I fall asleep, it will devour me whole. The next morning, I saw the family of Mr. Heesong arrive, and they told me that they intend to stay there while he recovers. It seems while helping father, you may have picked up something, so we want to help you too. The daughter said, offering me a jar. It's not filled with the bugs, is it? I teased her. Her stoic expression didn't reassure me. As I went back into my flat, I couldn't help but feel that they were watching me. Call me crazy, but I think they did something to me. I think they had passed on whatever curse their father had to me. I've been feeling so sleepy, that floating dog head is getting closer every night, and the food that I have here just doesn't seem filling anymore. Everything is dry and bitter. I keep staring at that jar, and hear the faint buzzing of hornets, and then the bark of a dog. Is it coming from my own mouth? You should contact your family to care for you, the way that we did for father. Family should be together in times like this. Mr. Heesong's son encouraged me. That sounded like a good idea, but I'm so scared though. I have this deep, unsettling feeling that this will only make things worse. In my dreams, I feel the dog chewing at my body, nipping at my sore and swollen flesh, and then I wake up with bite marks all over if my family does come, I think I will have only one request. They need to seal up my door too. 
or else I think this is just going to happen again. My two friends wanted to create a short film together. One had much darker intentions. Written by Mr. Mills of 45. To begin, when I tell you that I don't think I'll ever be the same after this experience, I mean it. The horrific nature of the events I'm about to describe are going to stay trapped in my memories forever. The nightmares that I have about it nearly every time I go to sleep prove that. It all began during my first year of college. I was pursuing a film major with two of my friends, Matt and Zoe. The three of us always held a strong passion for the arts of TV and movies. The process in which they were created intrigued us all our lives, even when we were little kids. Although Matt had become more of a lone wolf kind of guy as we got older, he still hung out and did things with us, but his heart didn't seem in it as much as it did the previous years. We had been assigned to work on a short film for class. The professor was giving us a full creative control and that excited the three of us beyond belief. We were finally getting the opportunity to show off our creativity, and I couldn't ask for anything better. I call being the director, I announced to Matt's disappointment. His expression became sour in response. Why should you get to be director? He huffed bitterly. Because your hands shake way too much to hold the camera steady. Every time you send me footage you've recorded, it looks like you have an earthquake going on right under you. I shot back. Zoe giggled at my remark, which only irritated Matt further. Matt possessed a huge crush on Zoe but had always been too afraid to ever tell her. Whenever I confronted him about going for it, he always just chalked it up to not wanting it to ruin their friendship or the dynamic of the group. But I could see right through his lie. It was a fear of rejection that held him back. I had honestly felt bad for the guy. He was constantly teased about it for the past several years. Even Zoe sometimes toyed with him. She wasn't a horrible person or anything, but I'll admit it, it was a little cruel. Especially in the small glimpses of times where he would try to flirt her and make a move. We need to find a better place to record this time. Matt chimed in. We're not doing it in the middle of town again. So what's your idea then? Zoe asked as we kept pacing down campus. The woods. Matt replied quickly. Let's make it a horror movie. You always want to do a horror movie. What's up with that? I interjected. They just seem really fun to make. We've never done one before, so why not try it out now? Zoe and I shot each other a glance, contemplating whether or not Matt's idea was plausible. I guess it wouldn't hurt to try something different. Zoe gave in. I ended up telling Matt to start coming up with a script and or a basic plot outline and to give it to Zoe and I within the next few days to which he agreed. I spent that time that he was using to work on the script, scouting out potential locations and spots to film at with Zoe, going over a variety of wooded areas, creepy neighborhoods and abandoned buildings. Everything that was needed for an effective horror movie set. You think I should finally give Matt an answer? 
Zoe inquired as we hiked through the forest near campus. An answer to what? You know, the obvious. She blushed, not able to spit the words out confidently. Well, that's up to you. He likes you and that's obvious enough and it has been for a while. But just try not to lead him on. Zoe sighed as she looked out the window. I just feel like he's become so bitter over the years. Sometimes I think it's my fault. It's not. Don't let that get to you. If he wants to be pissed about it, let him. When the time is right, he'll come to you and then you can let him down easy. When the three of us met back up a couple of days later, Matt had already come up with a nearly completed script to the short film to Zoe and I's amazement. I found a location for us to shoot it as well. Matt told us proudly, a prideful grin creeping up in his face. Matt, this is great. I congratulated. How long did it take you to write this? Just a few hours. It's nothing too complicated. Also, don't read it quite yet. I still need to do some final polishing. Good work, Matt. Zoe chimed in, holding out her palm for a high five, to which Matt silently scoffed at. He looked Zoe straight in her eyes with a cold expression. I would have preferred a hug. He huffed, making no effort to hide his disappointment. I rapidly darted my eyes between the two of them before speaking to break the awkward silence. Zoe instinctively took a step back. I didn't blame her for feeling uneasy. Well, Matt, would you like to show us the place that you found the film at? He hesitated before replying. Yeah, there's this old shed in the woods across campus. I'm pretty sure it was used for storage at some point. But no one uses it anymore, so we should be okay to record there. I stuck close to Zoe as Matt led us to the shed he kept going on about, not wanting her to become even more unsettled than she already had been. The path in the woods started right across the street from the main entrance of campus. The actual structure itself was heavily beat up and looked near centuries old. All sorts of plants, grass, and fungus were growing out of it. It was only just intact enough to walk on. Give it another year or two and it would be completely gone. Matt led the way about 30 feet in front of us, giving Zoe and I an opportunity to speak quietly to each other without him hearing us. We didn't encounter much wildlife during the hike, besides a few squirrels and insects anyway. This forest was always kind of barren and didn't offer much when it came to animals. I guess that's why he had picked it. We're here. Matt called back to us, reaching over his shoulder to motion us forward. The structure in front of him was exactly what I had envisioned. A small, old, and rotting wooden shed. The door was halfway open and looked like it was about to fall off of its hinges. The roof was slanted at an odd angle, while the ground surrounding it was completely barren of any grass or plants. It was nothing but dirt. Its appearance was perfect for what he was going for. You know, I gotta give it to him, Zoe said. This is definitely creepy. We'll just have to see how it turns out in the movie, I replied. Zoe and I stepped inside the shed for a closer inspection. 
The corners of the ceiling were covered in large spiderwebs, while the concrete of the floor was so cracked that we thought we would end up falling through it. You think this is a spot a serial killer would hang out at? Matt grinned at the two of us, slowly grabbing an old shovel off one of the rotting shelves and slinging it over his shoulder. Probably, I laughed, amused at Matt's acting. Well, we can read the script, come back here, and then start shooting, Zoe pronounced. I thought we could maybe shoot the intro now, just to get it over with, Matt said sternly, tightening his grip around the shovel. I tensed up a little as a reflex, taking a couple of steps back. Uh, yeah, sure. Hold on, let me grab my video camera. I told him as I knelt down and began to look through my bag. Matt and Zoe continued talking about the shed. Matt went on explaining how he had actually known about it for quite a while. He sometimes would venture out here in order to clear his mind, or find some alone time on stressful days. Which was understandable, but I found it odd that he would hide information like that from us, and then proceed to say that he found it recently. After rummaging around in my bag for the camera, I sighed frustratedly when I realized that I had left it back in my dorm at campus. Hey Matt, I called out. Yes, he responded, his expression unchanging as he continued to curiously inspect the shovel. I left the camera back in my dorm. You mind if Zoe and I go back and get it really quick? Are you serious? Matt gritted his teeth as he finally now turned his head toward me at the mention of the camera. Why do you have to get so mad? I'm the one who's in charge anyway. I shot back. So what? We had a perfect opportunity to start something cool right now, but you ruined it. He groaned now shifting his eyes back to the shovel once again. It's okay, calm down. Zoe attempted to defuse. We can just go back to get it really quick. Fine, Matt muttered. I'll be waiting. Zoe and I marched back to campus. We didn't run or do anything faster than walking. I felt a little bad that we were technically making Matt wait longer by not hustling but his behavior was becoming a little much to handle lately. He seemed so erratic yet distant at the same time. I guess he really wants to get started, Zoe jokes, trying to play off Matt's little outburst. He seems so pissed. It was just a simple mistake. I don't know what's gotten into him lately. Just try not to think about it too much. Zoe attempted to comfort me. Once the stress of this project is over, I'm sure things will go back to normal. I furthered, wanting to stay optimistic. Hopefully, Zoe finalized. When we had made it back to my dorm, I began to tear the place apart, trying to find the video camera. I went through every drawer, looked under the bed, and even lifted up my blankets. Nothing. What the hell? I erupted. The camera's not here. What do you mean? You said that you left it here. Zoya responded. I swear it was in the room when I left today. I declared. Great. Now we're really going to have to hear it from Matt. Zoe complained. I hiked back over to the shed with Zoe where we had left Matt. Preparing ourselves for him to get pissed at us for coming back empty-handed. And thwarting his plans to begin filming today. 
But when we had made it back to the shed, Matt was gone. The only trace being was the shovel he was holding was hung back up inside the shed. Alright Matt, you're not funny. Zoe called out loudly, causing her voice to echo through the trees. I scanned the woods left and right, marching back and forth along the beaten path to see if I could spot him hiding in a bush or something of the sort. He's just trying to mess with us, Zoe assured me, putting a hand on my shoulder. Yeah, I can see that. Maybe there's a chance he got bored of waiting and went back to campus. Don't you think we would have seen him? Zoe questioned. Starting to become unnerved, Zoe and I took a few more minutes to search the area for Matt. I pulled up my cell phone during our little expedition and sent him multiple text messages asking where he was. They were delivered but never opened. I think he's ignoring me, I announced to Zoe. He's not opening any texts. Same here, Zoe replied, showing me her phone with the unread text messages displayed on the screen. The evening breeze soon began to fall upon the both of us. We both had come to the conclusion that the search was pointless and headed back to campus. Hopefully, he had just wandered back there himself, I thought. When arriving at the boys' dorm building, I went to security and let them know about Matt. They simply told me that they would keep an eye out. Unsatisfied with just that, I also paid Matt's roommate a visit and he confirmed that he hadn't seen Matt since that early afternoon. That's what he told me at least. I let Zoe sleep in my dorm that night. The both of us didn't get much sleep. I kept thinking about Matt, as weird as he was acting. I didn't want any harm to come to him. I kept clinging to the fact that he was just trying to pull the poorly thought-out prank on the both of us. Even when he came off on the more strange side, he was a good kid at heart. I just hoped that he was okay. Zoe shook me awake that morning. She seemed even more anxious than the previous day. Her hair was a tangled mess from her night of sleep. Did you forget to shut the door last night? It was cracked open in the middle of the night when I went to go to the bathroom. I perked up, a feeling of dread starting to circulate in my veins. I could have sworn that I shut it, I told her. I knew she could see the terror in my eyes. I know for a fact that I shut the door. I've never forgotten to do that, not once. It's, it's okay, I shut it. I just thought it was pretty odd, that's all. Zoe said in order to call me despite the fact that she was riled up herself. Odd. That's freaking creepy. I know that I shut it. I sat up, getting out of the top bunk bed and looking out the window. Listen, I've got to go to class, Zoe said, trying to calm her and myself down. I'll see you later today. And Matt, hopefully... If he turns up. Um, yeah, I'll see ya, I responded. I kept my gaze fixated on everything out the window as Zoe finished getting ready and left the room, leaving me alone in the eerie silence of the dorm. Something was going on. Information was being withheld. I hated it. I felt like I was being kept in the dark. But why? 
I just hope that this is all some stupid misunderstanding. I went over to my bed to grab my phone and check if I had any messages from Matt, only to find that there was still no replies. No missed calls and no texts. Nothing. I checked the time. 11.21am. I only had one class today that began in two hours. I began to get dressed and I got my shoes on. But not for that reason. I went back to the shed. This time bringing a can of pepper spray with me. I wasn't taking any chances. I was far too on edge to be naive enough to go out there with no form of protection. I see the silhouette of the shed between the trees. This time with the door shut but still looking as broken as it did before. I approach slowly and taking in my surroundings with every step closer I get to the now haunting structure. I stopped at the door. The sound of my own breathing was the only thing giving me company in the silence of the trees. I gripped the edges of the door and pulled it open. It let out a cringe-inducing sound as it scrapped against the dirt below. Once the door was open, I stepped into the cabin, being greeted with the sight of my video camera sitting on the shelf to the left as if it had just appeared out of nowhere. I quickly grabbed the camera, an overwhelming feeling of anger boiling inside of me. Matt had the camera the entire time that we were out here yesterday, and he sent us on a wild goose chase. I was willing to even bet that his roommate had lied about not seeing him. I stashed the camera in my bag and went back to campus. I pulled on my phone on the way and had attempted to call Matt becoming even more pissed when he ignored me and didn't pick up. Screw you, I said out loud, despite the fact that there wasn't no one around. When I made it back to the dorm, I grabbed a USB cable and plugged one end of the camera and the other into my laptop, pulling up all of the recent footage to see if it had been used at all. When I went through the files of the cameras, I found two new clips that were both recorded yesterday both around a couple minutes long. I clicked on the first clip. A video came up, presenting a visual image of the area in the woods and near the shed. The sound was mostly silent, with the exception of light breathing coming from behind the camera as it was held shakily. Very shakily. The video focused on the shed itself. I can tell the camera had been zoomed in. It became quite clear who was filming. He was doing it from a distance and not wanting to be seen. I even caught a glimpse of a leaf in the corner of the frame, which alluded to the fact that the cameraman was behind a bush to be kept out of sight. Zoe and I stepped out of the shed in the first few seconds of the clip, yelling for Matt and trying to figure out where he was. I even looked down at the date in the corner just to be sure. It was dated as being recorded yesterday near the evening the same time that we had gone looking for Matt. The camera followed Zoe specifically for several seconds as her and I watched around the woods, trying to search the area for you-know-who. The video then cut off when we had seemingly given up and began to walk back to campus, but not before slowly zooming in on both of us and making our exit down the path. The breathing grew heavier right before it had stopped, I slid my laptop onto the bed next to me, 
I bent over and held my face in both of my hands. The horror that I was feeling made my hands tremble on my lap. I couldn't sit still, so I stood and paced up and down the dorm room for several seconds while trying to regain myself. At least enough to watch the second clip. What was this sick game Matt was playing? This wasn't about the movie anymore. This was something much darker, much more sinister and heinous. Once I had stopped shaking enough to pick my laptop up, I did exactly that and then pulled up the files once again. This time, clicking on the second clip and letting it play. The clip began by depicting the inside of the girls' dorm building on campus. The camera was slowly moving through the hallway right by my dorm. A hand reached out for the knob. Matt's hand. He held some sort of small metal stick between his index finger and thumb. Slowly, he pushed the metal into the lock, twisting, turning, and rotating it to pick the lock. As he held the camera with his opposite hand, his same heavy breathing only increased as he ever so slowly pushed the door open and stepped inside my dorm room. Although he had tried to silence himself as much as he could as to not wake Zoe and I, the camera slowly moved over towards the couch Zoe was sleeping on. It hovered over her face for multiple seconds. As Matt's hand came into frame and began to stroke her hair slowly and disturbingly as she slept, clueless as to what was happening to her. But then he suddenly stopped and turned to point the camera at me, zooming in on my sleeping face as I lay there unconsciously, oblivious to his presence. The video abruptly ended after the camera turned to face the door and slowly hovered to it, indicating that he was about to leave the room. When I had got done watching the video, I wanted to vomit from the fear-induced adrenaline rush. I could feel my stomach churning and my lips quivering as I held back tears. My fingers barely worked as I pressed to save on both of the clips and immediately called the police. When they had come and taken Matt that night, my suspicion of his roommate lying about his whereabouts was confirmed. They found him sneaking out of his dorm with the intention of returning to the shed to go get the camera again. That's what he told the police. I, on the other hand, felt it was going to be something much, and I mean much, much worse than that. The security team in the school, as well as the dean, collaborated with the local police department in order to get him booked. I stood by the car with Zoe as one of the officers asked if we wanted to press charges on the grounds of stalking. Yes. Zoe immediately responded, tears dripping down her cheeks and her fearful panic. I held her tightly against me, keeping her eyes away from the sight of Matt. The other officer, who had Matt in the handcuffs, began to shove him into the back of the squad car. Matt looked at the both of us, smiling with a grin so wide that I thought his lips would tear. What's the matter? He said coldly. No amount of human compassion left in his voice. You didn't like my movie. I didn't even get the chance to film the ending. Oh, you would have loved the ending. The officer slammed the back door in his face, cutting him off swiftly. We also turned in the script. The whole thing had been a fake draft in order to throw us off of what Matt was really intending. But the police said that it was evidence nonetheless, and asked us to give it to him, 
and to which Zoe and I happily obliged. I want to leave all who listen to this some advice. Make sure that you know who you have by your side in life. Lots of people are not what they appear to be. Never be naive, too trusting, or ignorant. That gives them the perfect opportunity to act on their dark, twisted intentions. The night shift job I got seemed great, but then I read the rules. Written by Mr. Mills, 45. After quitting my position at Mall Security, I had been looking for some sort of job involving a similar responsibility. Something had always fascinated me about it. The power, mainly. And no, don't worry, I'm not some sort of secret totalitarian who wants to rule over people's lives. Rather... I just simply enjoy the feeling of being able to patrol around in uniform. It was oddly fun for me, not quite sure why. It had been a long and grueling couple of weeks of unemployment, until I was offered a night shift job at a storage unit building that was a few miles off in the outskirts of the city. The manager of the property seemed just as thrilled to give me the job as I was to take it. It was especially cold during these times here in Minnesota. Christmas was not too far off, which I was extremely excited about. I was going to go visit my family down in Chicago during all that. Trading presents, eating good food, and indulging in social interaction. I'm still only 27 years old at the time of writing this, so my excitement of being able to drink was still quite strong. I wasn't an alcoholic by any means. But coming home after a long day of work and cracking open a cold beer never hurt anyone. When the night had finally arrived for me to start my first shift, I was relaxed in my admittedly messy apartment, watching whatever had piqued my interest on Netflix until it was nearly 7 in the evening. I lived alone so I hadn't ever really worried about bothering others with my lazy appearance whenever I had nothing to do for the day. It wasn't that I was a deadbeat or anything. I just never felt the need to overachieve or to do more than what was expected of me. But yet whenever I did do any hard work, I always felt proud of myself. But tonight was different. I had already collected my security uniform from the owner of the building a few days previously, so I was all dressed up and ready to go. But for some reason, I collected the uniform of the guy's house instead of the building, which I found to be a little strange, but try not to dig too deep into it. This night would be my first night seeing the actual building itself. I already had the address of the place written down. I hopped in the car and began my drive over to the storage unit building. I had lived in the city pretty much all my life, so I was always used to the hectic and often chaotic nature of the roads. Even at nighttime, these streets were often crowded, way more so than they should have been. My shift had actually started at 9, but the traffic on my way had held me back for nearly an hour, and my euphoria of excitement was beginning to dwindle into bitter frustration at all the people who had either cut me off or drove so slow to the point to where and getting out and running seemed like a more valid option. I did my best to keep my head up though. 
There was no need to delve into such a mindless anger over something that wasn't even so bad in the grand scheme of things. The destination was worth the trip. After it seemed like an eternity, I had finally arrived at the area of the storage unit building. It was even more isolated than what I had originally thought. It was a large, square-shaped cement structure with two big iron doors on the front. In between the doors was a large chain lock keeping them together, which I had the key for. Behind the building was the beginning of a very eerie-looking forest. Nothing but trees and bushes for miles is what it seemed like. I was definitely alone out here, so the chances of having to deal with burglary seemed pretty low. I smiled, thinking about how this job was going to be even easier than I thought. It even paid well above minimum wage. I didn't see how I could have landed a sweeter deal than what was in front of me. I parked my car off to the side where the iron door to the left ended, and it was just pure cement. I reached into the back seat of the car and grabbed my nightstick, my flashlight, and the keys to the building before hesitantly stepping outside of the car. Marching my way up to the colossal doors, I kept my eyes low towards the concrete ground. The sounds of the crickets and owls in the distance was enough to keep me comfortable on what was otherwise a strangely quiet night. Now, although that would have put most people on edge, I found it rather relaxing. For once, the sounds of cars, buses, and trains were gone. Once I had found the right key to the lock, I lifted my head to begin unlocking it. However, when I looked up, I saw something that not only made me shiver in place, but caused me to jump back so suddenly that I dropped the key itself. What the hell? I blurted, stepping back a few feet to process the sight. On the doors where the large lock was, were scratches. Very long, large scratches that looked as if a steroid-induced brown bear had done it. Just a second ago, the door looked completely untouched and was as smooth as butter. A clean, white pristine finish over the iron material. The chains of the lock had also been cut by whatever had made the scratches, which seemed impossible for me to not be able to hear, considering I was right next to the dang thing. Well... I guess there's no need for the key then. I muttered nervously to myself, picking up the keys with slightly shaking hands. Putting a hand on each iron door, I heaved and pushed with all my might and opened the doors. Luckily, they had supports built into them. Otherwise, there was no way that I was getting in without explosives. The door gave off a very low, rumbling noise as I pushed them further and further open, almost as if they had voices of their own. After a few more seconds of finally pushing and putting my back into it, the doors were finally open and I could step inside. When I looked forward, the building had a pretty simple layout. There was a long and ten-foot-wide hallway down the middle, and multiple small garage door storage units on each side. At the very end sat a medium-sized wooden desk, with a black leather chair behind it, accompanied by a small glass window that looked onto the desk where supposedly I was going to be stationed for the night. 
Towards the top of the ceiling ran a long metal balcony that circled the entire rectangular perimeter of the interior. When I turned and repeated the process that I had gone through earlier to open the doors in order to close them, I could have sworn that I saw what looked to be like a small brittle and skinny looking little boy staring at me just before the door shut. My heartbeat rose ever so slightly as the intense slamming sound of the doors closing erupted throughout the room, before it all returned back to the peaceful yet uncomfortable silence. I had just figured that my brain was going crazy due to the lack of stimulation that I was usually used to. I took just a few extra seconds to make sure that the doors were completely shut and secured tightly. Not that I was fearful of anyone being able to get in here anyway. When the doors were shut, the place seemed to be secured. I walked myself down the hallway over to the security desk. However, before sitting down, I looked over to my left. On the wall, there was a very old, busted up heavy looking wooden door. That looked like it had been around for much longer than the building had. There were drawings in what appeared to be chalk. They were all just a bunch of creepy looking symbols, one of them being a pentagram. But that was about the only one that I had recognized. I figured some teenagers had come by long before I was here, and just vandalized it with their own twisted sense of humor. Not too much of a big deal. Only I was conflicted as to how they got past the doors in the first place. I remembered the purpose of the doors with the symbol on it though. The owner of the building told me that there is a basement to this place, for when the storage units either became too full or tools were kept for when maintenance was needed. Therefore, I stopped questioning it and finally sat down at the desk, rummaging through a couple of the drawers in order to find the things that I needed. A couple minutes of ravaging through the desk led me to getting a hold of the employee handbook for security. How hard could it be to watch over a place like this? What truly caught my attention was a piece of paper underneath the handbook that read, The Rules, and the same chalk that had been used to draw on the door to the basement. The handwriting of the note was sloppy, as if it had been written by a young child. The Rules Please follow these to a T. It can and will save your life. It read at the top. Rule number one. If you hear footsteps rapidly approaching up the basement stairs, stay in your chair and don't go near the door or make a sound. Sit quietly and wait for 30 seconds. Rule two. If a tall, young, scraggly-haired girl with long, dirty fingernails appears to you, Asking where her brother is. Tell her I haven't seen him lately. In those exact words. Rule 3. If you hear scratching coming from inside the garage closet to the big iron doors on the right, walk up to it and tap your nightstick lightly three times against the door. Do not talk or make any other sounds. It doesn't like that. Rule number 4. When midnight arrives, there will come noises of a small female child crying from outside in the woods behind the building. Do not investigate the crying, no matter how human it may sound. Rule number five. If you look outside the window behind your desk and spot a man with a torn suit, very deformed skin with lifeless pitch black eyes, 
and an unnaturally large grin on his face with razor-sharp teeth gleaming in the night and standing at the entrance of the forest. Smile back and give him a small wave. After this, turn around and pay no attention to him, even if you may hear him tap on the glass. Reading all of these rules made me jump to the immediate conclusion that it was a prank. Something either the owner or previous security guard had written as a cruel joke to scare the new guy. There was no way any of this was real. Right? I immediately put the paper back into the drawer, disregarding it for now as nothing more than a joke, and pulling out the actual handbook to begin reading it. It was all pretty basic stuff. What to do if someone is trespassing, making sure there are no ways for anyone to break in or cause trouble, and so on. This all seemed much easier than what I had originally thought. Although, sitting here for several hours was going to make me antsy. I had regretted not bringing any entertainment besides my flip phone. Yeah, I know, I have a flip phone, which wasn't even getting any signal anyway in this place. I grabbed a pencil that I had spotted on the upper right corner of the desk and began to tap it in a catchy rhythm. As a small way to amuse myself while I watched the security camera feed. I tapped for what seemed like less than a minute, but as I went on tapping, it for some reason became louder, even though I wasn't applying any more force than what I had started with. The tapping amplified far beyond what I was doing before I came to the horrifying conclusion that the sound was of rapid, unnaturally fast footsteps trampling up the basement staircases. They were quick, aggressive, and almost hostile sounding. Whatever was running up the stairs was not only agile, but massive and most likely strong. Stronger than me for sure. Not that I was itching to find out. My heart stopped as I felt my blood freeze. I involuntarily curled my toes up in my shoes as I leaned over and quietly opened the drawer to get the paper with the rules on it. Rule number one. If you hear footsteps rapidly approaching up the basement stairs, stay in your chair and don't go near the door or make a sound. Sit quietly and wait for 30 seconds. There were a few more loud and repetitive steps before the sound suddenly ceased, until I could only hear a heavy breathing, not one of fatigue but more out of anger and lust for something, probably for me. I couldn't tell if it was feminine or male, just that it sounded hungry, like it hadn't eaten anything in weeks. I sat as still as I possibly could in the chair. My breathing was irregular and my hands began to shake in terror, but I did what the paper had told me and stayed silent. But I wanted nothing more than to open my mouth as wide as possible and just scream. I know doing that at this point was an instant way to earn myself a horrible death, that I had imagined many ways for what a sort of horrible entity or creature could have been on the other side of the door. It wanted to hurt me, I just knew it. I know staying silent was a part of getting out of this situation alive, but I knew that thing was still aware of my presence nonetheless. The breathing became slightly louder, although it didn't bang on or touch the door in any way. Its presence was enough to make me shiver like a child. 
but after the 30 seconds had finally passed, the sound of whatever the thing was on the other side of the door running back down the stairs, just as fast as it had ran up them, gave me the opportunity to finally be able to take a deep breath comfortably. The fast footsteps slowly faded out as the creature moved south down the building back into the basement. I'm pretty sure the basement was some sort of portal to hell instead of a regular old basement. It took me a minute to regain the courage to move, but I did my best to normalize my breathing back to what it had been before that nightmare of an event had taken place. I wish that I could tell you that my previous experience had prepared me for something like this, but no, not even close. I kept rereading the piece of paper with the rules on it. I wanted to make sure that I got the rules cemented in my head, although I was going to keep the paper on me just in case. I wasn't going to go another second without having it in my possession. At this point, it would be foolish. None of this felt real. Why hadn't the owner told me about any of this? Why wasn't this place closed down? Abandoned? To hell with all of this. That is, if I wasn't in hell already. I knew that attempting to go home early seemed like even more of a death sentence now. I didn't want to risk setting foot outside of the structure, even with whatever the heck that thing was in the basement. As long as I kept the door sealed and shut, I figured everything would be okay. I was able to at least check the time on my phone despite the lack of signal. It was currently 11.30pm, getting close to midnight. In order to calm my nerves, I began to pace up and down between the storage units, carrying my nightstick in one hand and the rolls in the other. But that didn't stop the fact that I had the overwhelming feeling of being watched looming over me. It was almost as if the strange forces in this place didn't want me here, or anyone for that matter. As I was pacing, I came to the opposite end of the hallway to my desk. I took a look at the garage doors, making sure there were no flaws or breachable points. I can't wait until this is over. I muttered to myself. Naturally, when I had finished my little sweep, my first action was to begin walking back and turn around, which I did and immediately regretted it. Standing in front of the desk was a very tall woman. She had to be nearly eight feet. Her black, long, scraggly hair hung down to her legs and covered up most of her face, save for parts of her forehead. She was impossibly skinny, but that only made her more inhumanly horrific in her appearance. Her fingernails looked between four and six inches long. They were extremely dirty and beat up, covered in what seemed like dried up blood just from first glance. What made me really flinch was the fact that she was nude, but possessed no breasts or typical genitals of a human female. She stood perfectly still as she stared down at me, not even breathing as she kept her eyes fixed on me. Have you seen my brother? She asked. Her voice was extremely raspy, not in a masculine way, but it sounded as if someone decided to violently slide a cheese grater up and down her throat. I froze, not knowing what to do. 
I began to internally panic and my instincts were getting the best of me. The rules had temporarily left my head as I tried desperately to remember them. Answer me, she shrieked. The room shook under the force of her wavelengths as her demonic voice boomed throughout the structure of the building. Uh, no, no, I haven't, I promise. I quickly blurted out. Crap, I thought to myself. I had forgotten what I was actually supposed to say to her. I had broken one of the rules. The girl snapped her head to the right quickly as if she had just broken her neck. Her hair didn't move out of her face save for her eyes, which I guess was a good thing at this point. I grabbed my nightstick while it was on my waistband, gripping it tightly in case she came at me. But she just stood there doing absolutely nothing while staring at me. I didn't even want to blink. I did everything I could to keep my eyes open and make sure that my attention hadn't been taken off of her, not even for a second. My eyes burned and a stinging sensation crept up on me as I strained to keep them open. Eventually, I had no choice but to let myself blink, which then gave the woman enough to vanish. I turned frantically and looked all around to make sure that she wasn't in the building. I know for a fact that it probably wasn't going to be my last time ever seeing her. I immediately exhaled once I saw the space was empty and the coast appeared to be clear. But still, I kept my grip on my nightstick while using my other hand to pull out the piece of paper with the rules on it to see how gravely I would messed up. Rule number two. If a tall, young, scraggly-haired girl with long, dirty fingernails appears to you asking where her brother is, tell her, I haven't seen him lately, in those exact words. Seeing my mistake physically written down in front of me did nothing to help my nerves. I could feel my hands sweating a river as I tried to take bigger, slower breaths to calm myself down. Speaking of my hands, however... When I looked at the back of my left wrist, there had been a pentagram carved into it. Despite the fact that I felt no pain or blade slice my skin, it wasn't bleeding heavily, but it was still red like it was a fresh scratch that I'd gotten only minutes ago. I came to the conclusion that it was because I had foolishly broken one of the rules. I pulled on my phone again to check the time. 11.58 p.m. I walked back over to my desk, sitting down and letting my head rest on the wood as I waited for the inevitable. Soon, the crying of the girl in the forest started. It had hit midnight. It was agonizing, less crying and more screams of emotional and physical pain. Please, please help me. The voice begged through the trees. I didn't dare go near the window by the security desk. I didn't want to know what horrific sight was waiting for me there. I stayed in place. Not that I was planning on moving anyway. Obviously, my instinct was to open the doors, get into my car, and drive out of here. But whatever was outside it definitely wasn't going to let that happen. 
I needed to at least wait until the cries of the girl stopped. It wanted to lure me out there to either consume or kill me, or whatever it was that demonic entities usually did. It's getting me, please. Please help. She continued on. Her screams became more and more blood-curdling and unsettling as time went on. Eventually, the forcefulness of her pitch began to fade. It sounded as if the vocal cords in the girl's throat were beginning to tear. I just took it as the entity giving up and seeing that I wasn't going to take the bait. It wasn't until nearly five minutes after it initially begun that the screaming had finally ceased. It was now completely quiet outside. Although at this point, the silence didn't bring me peace. I turned and took a gamble at looking out of the window behind the desk. To my relief, there was nothing out there. Just the dark silhouettes of trees, grass and bushes which somehow also made me even more uncomfortable. I leaned over in the chair, sitting forward, and keeping my eyes down the hallway of the building, with my back turned to the window. And then the lights had suddenly started to flicker in and out. One of them fully gave out and exploded after several seconds. I watched as little sparks and pieces of glass had fallen onto the floor of the hallway. It made me nervous that it was going to end up starting a fire in the building. The flickering became more and more intense before all the lights had finally given out, and now the room had gone completely pitch black. I could see nothing, but I felt the presence of something behind me. Something evil. You didn't follow the rules. Came the bone-chilling voice. It was almost as if I could feel the entity's breath pass through my body. No, 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 please. I shouted. I was at the breaking point. I could no longer take a single second to being in the cell. I needed to get out. I immediately leapt out of the chair. With adrenaline pumping through every single vein of my body, I bolted through the darkness to the end of the hallway and used muscle memory to begin pulling the iron doors open as these sounds of strange laughter surrounded me. They were taunting me, making me feel as if all my efforts were in vain and that I was going to become a victim to them no matter what. I was able to pull the doors open in just a few seconds and the moonlight of the night quickly pierced itself into the building, lighting it up like Times Square. Once the doors were open, I bolted out of them and over to my car, grabbing the keys and jamming them into the lock before throwing the door open and dashing into the driver's seat. Whatever was pursuing me had seemed to either not care, or wanted me to get away and the sound of laughter only became louder and louder as I turned the keys in the ignition. Once the engine was on, I threw it into reverse, and immediately slammed my foot on the gas for dear life, only taking a couple of seconds to look back as I peeled away. In the mirror, I saw the stomach-churning reflection of the man with the huge smile the note had described, a torn suit, ragged and deformed skin. The huge smile with razor-sharp, rotting teeth and lifeless black eyes staring right back at me, he waved ever so slowly at me through the mirror as I peeled away, 
His inhumanly large grin did not change in the slightest as I left him, and whatever the heck else was there in the dust. From the moment on, I was never working a night shift ever again, no matter how high the pay was. It's been a couple of weeks now of taking time to myself and talking to a therapist that I could barely afford. Not that I told her the full truth, of course. I had been scrolling through my phone, ignoring any communication from the owner of the building. In fact, I even blocked his number and anything to do with him. When I called the police and gave them as much info as I could about the place and the owner, they came up with nothing sufficient enough to press forward with an investigation. I knew that I had to take matters into my own hands and do my own research. I wanted the owner of the building to pay me for what he had put me through. Some might say that sounds a little psychotic, but you can't sit there and tell me that you wouldn't be upset if someone lured you into something like that. So, I simply went about scrolling and surfing the web one day in my quest to find more info, and I had come across an online news article which had immediately caught my attention with just the headline. Security guard at Will's storage house missing after only two days on duty, police say. As bad as I felt for the guy, it was just the event needed to kickstart an investigation. A necessary evil, if you will. Two days, I thought. He lasted longer than I did. I'll give him props for that. But when I dug further into the article... The writer made a point of saying that he vanished with no trace. The only clue being was that his car was still parked outside of the building. No one would believe me, but I knew. All those creatures, entities, monsters, whatever they were, had gotten him. I broke the rules, but I got lucky and survived. I couldn't say the same thing for him. To everyone reading this, whatever you do... If something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Trust your gut, or you'll end up like the poorest soul in the news. I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of what's in it. Written by Veristal You have a lovely home. Yeah, thanks I guess. It was on the market a long time. Out in the boonies and run down like crap. But I don't mind. Well, you've definitely modernized it. I like the camera at the front door. I've been telling my husband that we need one of those. And those uh, things in the yard. Are they? Yeah, lights. I had a choice of 20 grand on the roof or on the lights. Guess which I picked. Well, given your circumstances, I guess that seemed like the right choice. Um, Claire, before we get started, I have a little card that I need to read to you. Okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. Great. I am here acting as a social worker assigned to your case through the Community Mental Health Board. 
I am not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, and our conversations are not a form of mental health counseling. They are not confidential. And, um, I am not qualified to act as your therapist. If you feel the need for counseling beyond that, which may have already been recommended, or you have any ideas of self-harm or harm of others, please let me know immediately. Okay, cool. Sorry, it's a mouthful, but if I don't read it, I can get in trouble. You understand. Sure. Now, Claire, you're in our program because of your... Nyctophobia. Fear of the dark, right? That's what they tell me. And you got referred to the program as part of the administration of what began as a criminal complaint. Is that right? Yeah. I was in a grocery store. In the back, at the freezers. Those rolling blackouts we've been having the last few months. Well, one of them kicked in while I was looking at some frozen peas or something. I thought my heart was going to burst. Security lights came on, but they were crappy and far away. They didn't do much. Besides, sometimes a little light just makes it worse. It lets you see what's in the dark. Uh-huh. Anyway, I caught a glimpse of something. A reflection. Probably nothing. The chrome off the milk cooler or something. I don't know. But it freaked me the heck out. I started screaming, running toward the front, toward the light from the front windows. And I guess that I hit a display. Pasta sauce or something. I don't remember. When I get panicked like that, I don't remember much. But the manager was a prick and called the cops, like I was trying to vandalize something. And so, here we are. Yes, here we are. I'm sorry that happened to you. It sounds like they treated you unfairly. But maybe we can make this a positive thing anyway. It never hurts to have a little help. Still going to therapy like you're supposed to. Lady, I've been going to therapy for 25 years. I'm not stopping now. Oh, well good. Do you think it helps with your nep... nyctophobia? No, not really. Because I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm messed up, don't get me wrong. I have phobias, anxiety, depression, PTSD. But it's not the fear of the dark that gets me. I'm afraid of what's in the dark. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. It's really just a fear of the unknown, isn't it? I remember one time. No, not the unknown. I know what's out there. Oh, what's that? 
you don't want to know. You're wrong, Claire. While these aren't therapy sessions, I'm going to be coming to do a monthly visit for the next year. And, well, I would like to become your friend. You certainly don't have to share anything with me, but if you want to, please do. When I was 14, I found my mother dead on the kitchen floor. Oh, I, um, I'm so sorry. I, um, she had come home for lunch, and someone had been waiting. They cut her throat and had her spread out on the floor, like she was making a snow angel. That was my first thought when I saw her. Why is mom on the ground making a snow angel? Stupid. It doesn't even snow out here. But then I saw her eyes, or where her eyes had been. They had been cut out. Eyelids too. And pieces of mirror were stuck in there instead. I could see little versions of myself as I started to understand what had happened. I think about that sometimes. Those little versions of me, like they're separate. And if they are separate, they were already there before I got there. They knew what was going on. They should have warned me as soon as I came in the room. Told me to turn around or to run. He was still there. Got me with a rag from behind. And when I woke up, I was in a trunk. It was some big old sedan eaten up with rust. I've seen pictures of it years ago. It honestly looked too crappy for a serial killer. Which I guess says more about me than anything else. There was a hole in the trunk lid. It let in a little patch of sunlight as we drove along. Just enough for me to see that my mom was in there with us. Oh God. Yeah, I was real scared. But I was also kind of numb, I guess. I cried a bit, tried to wake her up, but I knew she was gone. She had been gone for hours already. And then I started to dig around in the walls of the trunk, maybe for a latch or at least some kind of weapon. Nothing. Nothing but me and her. When the car stopped, I knew he was coming to get me. I was going to kick him and scream, but I knew that it wouldn't matter. I would be scared and hurt and then I would be gone, just like her. But he didn't come. Nothing happened. After a few hours, I started banging on the lid, yelling. After a while, I started worrying less about him coming back and more about dying in that trunk. She was smelling by that point, but then so was I. We were trapped in that dark together, and it was terrible. But at least she was already gone, you know. 
She didn't have to be afraid, uh, like I was. We, we don't have to keep talking about this if you're uncomfortable. Time gets weird in the dark. They told me later that I was in that trunk for three days. Parked at the far end of a rest stop, where he had abandoned the car. They never knew why he did that, or even who he was. That was always the part that mattered to them. Catching him, because they didn't believe me. I had given up, or gone crazy enough in the dark, that I didn't know what to keep trying. Either way, I was just sitting there, staring, when I saw something in that little bit of light that came from the hole in the trunk lid. For days, it had been shining on a spot on Mom's shirt. It was this burgundy shirt she loved to wear to work. But now, it had shifted. She had shifted. I hadn't heard anything or noticed any movement. It was the mirrors that gave it away. They were closer to the hole now, you see. Broken bits of light shining at me in the dark. Seeing me as I saw it. Watching those little pieces of me start to scream as it pushed closer in the dark. Quiet. So terribly quiet. No sound of breathing or movement. Like an eel swimming out of liquid night. Getting closer with shining eyes and a wide, horrible smile. And then the trunk opened. A janitor had heard me screaming my head off that time. And it all went from there. I went to the hospital. The cops came and talked to me. I went to a different kind of hospital. And they came and talked to me again. I got out, lived my life, and now, here we are. Um, yes, here we are. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Oh, good. Well, that makes it better now, doesn't it? Are we about done? Yes, um, yes. Just, you know that what happened in the trunk... It didn't really happen, right? That was just your mind playing tricks on you. You were in shock. Maybe even dreaming. That's what they tell me. Fugue state. Trauma-induced hallucination. Fancy ways of telling me, no. Because my version of reality is inconsistent with theirs. With yours. But it's just, that's impossible. They're right. You were just a poor, traumatized girl seeing things on the worst day of your life. And I can see it still weighs on you. I wish that I could carry that burden for you, even for a little while. And I, I'm no expert, but I feel like if you could just see that it's not real, you'd feel better about things. Uh-huh. Let me walk you out. Sure, yeah. 
I'll call at the end of the month to set up a time for our next visit. And I'm sorry. I don't mean to be pushy or nosy. I just find this kind of thing fascinating. And I really do think that, uh... Blackout. Give it a second. There we go. That was fast. Why are the lights in the yard flashing like that? Oh, the power is still out. I have a generator. The lights in the yard are set to flash for 30 seconds during a power disruption, and then go to a rotating slow pulse until regular power is restored. Supposedly, it saves on the power drain to the generator. They certainly are bright still. Yep, it's kind of the point. Thanks for coming to visit. Wait, what's that? What's what? The lights out there. I see. When the lights move out across the yard, I can see other things lighting up out there. Do you have reflectors farther out? No, no reflectors. Just the lights all around the house. Well, well then, what is it? What's reflecting out there? There's so many. It sounds like you should get going then. Oh god. When the light went by again, I think they're moving closer. Let, let me back in, please. Sorry, but I'm not opening the door again. You should go if you can make it to your car. What is it? What's out there? Figments of my imagination. They've been coming around from time to time since I got out of that trunk. Since it saw me. Please, please open the door. It's not happening, sorry. They like staying out of the light, but... I'm not risking an open door now that you've got their attention. But you really do need to get out of here. There's enough light to make it to your car. No, you just let me back in and... I'm not playing with you. You will die out there if you don't move now. You unlock your car with the clicker. You run to it and get in. You drive away and go home. And when you get home, you keep all the lights on. You did this on purpose. You agreed to meet after dark. Said it was the only time that you could do it. You want them to get me. No, I don't. And I couldn't say for sure that they would even come tonight. But maybe they would. And if they did, maybe they would take interest in you and leave me alone. I'm so tired of it. All of it. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's time for someone else to carry that burden for a while. You better hurry. They're starting to sing. I'm an ex-Navy SEAL. Here's why I retired. Written by Ngobi. I was a Navy SEAL, bud slash ass class 237, and assigned to SEAL Team 10. I enlisted in the Navy after dropping out of college. I realized that it just wasn't for me, and going to college, getting my degree and working some 9 to 5 job for the rest of my life. I felt like I was meant for something more. My parents weren't happy when I told them that I had quit college 
and planned on becoming a Navy SEAL. Looking back on it, I probably should have pushed through my last two years of college, so I would have at least had a degree to fall back on in case things didn't work out. I made it through training, and let me tell you that was one of the hardest things that I ever had to do, and eventually I earned my SEAL trident. I remember the day like it was yesterday. Seaman Dakota Waters, please step forward, said my SQT instructor. He smiled, pinned on my trident, and we saluted each other. And that was that. I was officially a Navy SEAL. Everyone clapped, including my parents who were there, and had grown to accept my decision. The moment was surreal. So much hard work finally paying off. Within a month, I was shipped out to Afghanistan for my first tour. After my first tour, I found a girlfriend, Mary, who I eventually married. During my second tour, I was notified that we had a little girl on the way. After three tours to all around the Middle East, I had eventually worked my way up to Chief Petty Officer. The guys in my squad, they were my brothers. I had spent more time with them than I did with my own family, and we had been through hell together. One day about four months after coming home from Iraq, after our third tour, me and some buddies from the team were kicking back by a bonfire at a ranch one of my buddies owned. We were having a good time, drinking beers, telling stories, laughing, and reminiscing. It was at that moment when I received a phone call. It was our commanding officer. I thought this was odd because our commanding officer, LT Shipley, never calls us unless it's extremely urgent. I told everyone to quiet down, and I put it on speaker. Chief Petty Officer Waters, are you alone? Said Shipley on the other end of the line. Uh, no, I'm with the squad, why? I replied. Well, good. They need to hear this too, he replied. In one week, you and your squad will be shipping out to Panama to conduct reconnaissance on illegal trade routes leading up through Central America and into the U.S. We all looked at each other, somewhat in shock. We had all just gotten back from deployment not four months ago, and now they were shipping us off to Panama. One of my teammates, Daniel, spoke up and said, that can't be right. There are no known drug trafficking routes in southern Central America. They all start in Costa Rica. Well, maybe they found new ones, and they want us to gather more information on them. My buddy Ricky said, sounding incredulous. Regardless of what exactly they want us to be looking at, it's complete BS that we are already getting deployed again. I complained. We all thought the whole situation was very weird, but eventually we had just accepted it. Just as stated, exactly a week from that day, we were on a plane being shipped out to Panama. Panama is a trashy place, no offense to anyone from there, but after what happened to me there, I don't regret talking bad about the place. It's awful. The second we landed at the headquarters in the middle of the jungle, where we would be living for the next two months, I knew that I was going to hate it. 
humid, sticky, warm, bugs constantly buzzing around your ear. It's enough to make a bunch of hardened warriors go mad. We got to our bunks, unpacked our stuff, and relaxed. We knew it was going to be a long two months, so we all needed all the sleep that we could get. I wonder what exactly they're going to have a spine on tomorrow, asked Johnson, our team's medic. No idea, Ricky replied. That's the last thing that I remember before drifting off into sleep. I was awoken the next morning to L.T. Shipley banging on the side of my bunk. Everybody up, time to go. Everyone up, come on. I checked the clock on the wall above my bed. 3.42 in the morning. I rubbed my eyes, shook my head, and sat up. This early, L.T.? I said irritatingly. I don't make the rules, I just enforce them, he replied. Everybody up, let's go. Once everybody was up, we grabbed a quick snack to give us some energy, and then we headed to the briefing room to figure out what we were going to be doing. The briefing room was small. You could fit maybe ten people at most in there. We were greeted by some army general, whose name I didn't know. He shook our hands and sat all four of us, myself, Ricky, Daniel, and Johnson down. All right, boys. Your mission is to gather as much information as you can on this tunnel that we discovered about 80 clicks southeast from this point. We suspect that it may be used by drug traffickers to smuggle contraband across the border into Mexico so the cartels can ship it to America. There's a clearing with a perfect view of the entrance to the tunnel about 600 yards where you all can remain hidden. Overall, the objective is fairly simple. Watch the entrance of the tunnel. Photograph what you see, make reports, and report back to anyone entering or exiting the tunnel. You got it? We all replied with, Yes, sir. Nextville will be 20 clicks over this mountain at approximately 9pm, so don't miss it, Shipley added. It was at that moment that I realized that Shipley was in full combat gear. I don't know how I hadn't noticed it before. Are you going to be on this op with a Shipley? I asked. Oh, no, I've got my own op with another squad, he said. I thought that was a little weird. I thought this entire situation was weird. Ever since we had arrived, things hadn't seemed right. I asked my squad if they felt the same way, and they said that they did. Johnson said that he had been getting weird looks from all the higher-ranking personnel since he had gotten here. He told me that he even saw two Air Force women pointing at him and whispering something to each other. I didn't know what to make of the situation, but what could I do? My job was to execute what the higher-ups had told me to do. We were to load up on the helicopter in five minutes. Alright boys, I said, let's load out. We collected our gear, weapons, and everything else that we would have needed for this operation. The helicopter ride there was rather uneventful. Twenty minutes of flying over a thick jungle until eventually, we saw it. You could barely see it due to it being the early morning and still being dark, but it was there. It was bigger than any tunnel I had ever seen. The opening of it stood at least 90 feet tall and looked like it had been there for centuries. 
the helicopter flew up right past it, about a half mile away from it until it dropped us off. The reason that we got dropped off so far away from the objective is in case anyone of interest is at the location at that current moment and they won't see us. Once we were dropped off, it was a good walk to get to where we were going to settle up in. Once we got there, we unpacked everything that we had. Johnson had his pair of binoculars. Ricky had a zoomed-in scope he attached to his long-ranged rifle. Daniel had a camera and a notepad. And I was on communications duty, or comms as we like to call it. The first five hours were uneventful. Sitting there with our perfect view of the entrance to the tunnel. Nothing happened and no one entered and no one left. It was around 10.30 at this point and the sun was up now. It was around this time when I told Ricky, Daniel, and Johnson that we should take sleeping schedules. Two of us keep watch while the other two sleep and we would switch every three hours. We were to wake the two sleepers up if anything eventful happened. Daniel and Johnson offered to take first watch while Ricky and I slept. I was fine with that idea. The Lord knew that I needed some shut-eye. I rolled up my backpack for a pillow and slowly drifted off to sleep. Dakota, Dakota, wake up. I was awoken by Johnson shaking me and yelling in my face. What's going on? I asked. I then looked around and noticed that Daniel was missing. Where the heck did Daniel go? I asked. The tunnel. He walked into the tunnel. What do you mean he walked into the tunnel? I asked Ricky, who was awake at this point. It was about an hour after you two had gone to sleep that he had been completely normal. But then he got up and started walking towards the entrance. I tried to stop him, but he just kept walking. It was almost as if he was in some kind of trance. Johnson replied, we gotta go after him, I said. We were given strict orders to not enter the tunnel. Johnson replied hesitantly. That's our brother in there, let's go, Ricky said, grabbing his rifle and running towards the tunnel. Johnson and I both grabbed our rifles and followed Ricky. As we got closer and closer to the tunnel, I began to make out distinct features of it. It had stalagmites and stalactites and it didn't go straight through the mountain. It went down into it. This wasn't a tunnel. It was a cave. Wait, I said. Look at this. I don't know any drug traffickers that would use this to smuggle contraband. Ricky and Johnson both looked as baffled as I was. What do we do? Asked Ricky. We can't leave Daniel down there, I said. I hope you guys like spelunking. We turned on the flashlights to our rifles and began our descent into the cave. The first few hundred feet had nothing in them, just dark tunnels. But about 500 feet in, we began noticing drawings on the walls. At first, they were just normal caveman drawings, pictures of tigers and leopards from thousands of years ago. But as the drawings went on, they got more confusing. The leopards and tigers were soon replaced by violent scribbles, as if someone had gotten a piece of chalk and scrubbed the walls with it as hard and spastically as they could. We kept following these scribbles along the wall until they eventually stopped. 
What was drawn after these scribbles, I still have not forgotten to this day. A picture of a person, but it wasn't a person. It had long, disgusting tentacles and dragon-like wings. It had horns on its head, with a long, lizard-like tail. But it wasn't so much the drawing of the creature that scared me. It was the drawings of the hundreds of people around it, bowing to it, worshipping it. The pictures then went on to show people giving human sacrifices to this creature. There were drawings of people being burned alive, and the burnt corpse being fed to it. It was disgusting. What the heck? said Ricky. Maybe it's a drawing of a deity thought to have been real by an ancient civilization, Johnson replied. It was at that moment that we heard Daniel scream from deep within the cave. That's Daniel, I screamed. We all rushed towards where we had heard the scream, tripping and tumbling over rocks the entire way. We kept screaming things out like, We're coming, Daniel, or Don't worry, buddy. But something in my mind kept telling me that it was too late for Daniel, and if we went down there, we would meet his same fate. But I couldn't leave Daniel down there, even if he was dead. He had been with me since the first day of SEAL training. He was my brother. We raced down the cave, sprinting as quickly as we could until eventually, we turned a corner and... Oh my god, Ricky whispered. We all stood there in horror. At first, I didn't exactly know what I was looking at, but then it dawned on me. It was Daniel's body. It was torn to shreds. It was almost unrecognizable, and if it weren't for his dog tag, I might not have been able to figure out it was him. We all stood there over what was left of his body, petrified with fear. I was about to say something until we heard a loud crash coming from across the, what I now realized, was a massive dome-like room within the cave. We all turned to look to where we had heard the crash, and what we saw makes me regret ever joining the military in the first place. That thing. That thing that was drawn on the walls of the cave. There it was, looking at us. It looked even more hideous in person. It was about 40 feet tall, jet black save for dark blood-colored eyes. It had jagged teeth, with ten long, squid-like tentacles protruding from its back. It had those black dragon-like wings and a lizard-like tail, just like on the drawings. Its face. My god, its face. The red eyes and jagged teeth, the rotted skin, and the long black hair. I wanted to say that it looked human, but this thing was far from human. It let out one raspy growl, and the walls of the cave began to shake. And then it got even worse. People, thousands of people wearing clothing made out of bones and cloth, with face and body paints all over them, began closing in on us. I don't know where they came from, but there were at least 2,000 of them. We gotta get out of here, I yelled. Ricky and Johnson were still petrified with fear. Let's go, I yelled at both of them. All of a sudden, the creature shrieked a disgusting shriek and one of its tentacles extended a tremendously long length and wrapped around Ricky, 
With one swift pull, Ricky went flying in the air and into the creature's mouth. I wanted to do something, but there was no time. I yelled at Johnson to follow me, and we both began to run. I fired off a few rounds at the people chasing after us, and they fell to the ground, creating a small gap for me and Johnson to run through. I sprinted through that gap, nearly getting caught by one of the people. Once I had made it through, I checked to see if Johnson was behind me, and he was. We both raced up the cave, trying to remember where we had come from. The last thing either of us wanted to do was get lost in this hellhole with that thing. We kept sprinting, desperately making our way through the cave until we saw the light from the entrance. I quickly glanced behind me and noticed that some of the people were still chasing after us. I grabbed a frag grenade that I had on me and I tossed it at them, sending them all flying. The relief only lasted for a second though, when I heard a demonic screech come from within the cave. At that moment, me and Johnson sprinted out of the cave and kept running. When we were about 300 yards away from the cave, I turned around to see if we were being followed. There it was, not following us, but standing at the entrance of the cave, looking right at us. We both stared at it for about 30 seconds. It let out one last deafening screech, and then went back into the cave. Neither me or Johnson knew if it was going to come back out, but we weren't staying to find out. We resumed running, not stopping until we knew we were far away from that cave. When we finally did stop, we both found a place to rest and we just sat there, not saying a word. About an hour passed before Johnson finally asked, What time is it? I checked my mobile clock. 8.30 p.m. Exville was in 30 minutes. Do you remember where Exville was? I asked Johnson. Yeah, when we were running, I somehow managed to keep track of where we were. Luckily for us, the helicopter is supposed to arrive five miles west of here, he replied. I sighed with relief, and we began heading that way. When we got there, the helicopter was waiting for us. What took you all so long? We were just about to head off and leave ya. And where are the other two? The pilot asked. I just looked at him with a blank expression on my face. He just nodded and began to take off. When we arrived back at HQ, me and Johnson were pulled into a room and sat down. Four men in suits and the general that had briefed us walked in. They had looks of pity on their faces, and one of these suited men leaned in. He sighed. Here's a hundred grand each for both of you. Never speak of this again, please, he said. He slid the wads of cash to both of us from across the table, and they all filed out except for the general. The general looked at us with a sad look on his face for a minute, and then informed us that our flight's home would be tomorrow, and the option for an early retirement would be presented to us. I am now a 46-year-old man, still happily married to my loving wife Mary, and the proud father of a beautiful 17-year-old daughter named Jessica. I still keep in touch with Johnson, and sometimes we get together at a bar or around a bonfire and just cry together. Cry about what we had witnessed, 
and for the loss of our two brothers. I will forever hold hatred towards the United States military and the government for willingly putting us in the situation that they did, lying to us so we wouldn't back out of the operation, and getting my two closest friends killed. When my wife asked what happened to Ricky and Daniel, I lie and say that they were shot while in Afghanistan. When I wake up screaming at night from the nightmares, I tell her that it was just nightmares from what happened in the Middle East. I could never tell her what actually happened, or why I was actually diagnosed with severe PTSD. I even lied to the doctors at the VA, partially because I was informed by the government to never speak of what happened, but also because I would be deemed crazy if I ever told anyone. I couldn't keep it to myself any longer though. I had to get it off my chest. So for all of you out there, never become a Navy SEAL, never enlist in the military, and never, I mean never journey to the Darien Gap in Panama. My Little Brother Got Stuck in an Air Vent Written by Carter Vandenberg As children, me and my little brother would always race each other through the air vents in our house to see who could get to their room faster. Dad would always tell us not to do it, since one of us could get stuck. But we never believed him, so we just did it when he wasn't around. He was probably just tired of us always popping out of a vent and scaring him. I would win pretty much every time at first, but eventually I started having trouble moving in the tight spaces due to my growing body. While my brother would only get better and better, until our roles had reversed and suddenly, he was the one always beating me. It wasn't that I was getting slower, quite the opposite in fact. Something inside me said that if I moved too fast through the vents, I would eventually get stuck. So I stopped racing. This ticked my little brother off. You're just mad because you're losing, he would shout. I ignored him and went up to my room. After about half an hour, my dad called and said that he was going to be late from work and to unload the dishwasher and to get my little brother to help rake the leaves outside. It was pretty normal for my dad to be late, so I did as I was told without questioning it. It was only when I went to rake the leaves that I noticed something was wrong. Forty-five minutes had passed since I came home from school with my little brother, and yet I hadn't seen him since getting there. That wasn't normal. He was always bugging me to play with him, or do something stupid that would get us in trouble, and I would always turn him down. Had he finally given up? No, that didn't seem like him. I assumed something had happened at school that upset him, unless he was still mad at me about the vent thing. But that wouldn't make any sense. If it was me, he would probably just try to punch me or something like that. It must have been something I didn't know about. I went up to his room, but he wasn't there. I searched the entire house, but I didn't find him anywhere. 
If you laughed, I probably would have heard the front door opening. I searched again, this time looking through each and every nook and cranny that he could be hiding in, all the while calling his name. I was about to give up and say that he ran out when I wasn't paying attention and called the police. And that's when I heard him crying. Donnie, where are you? No response. Okay, come on out, Donnie. This isn't funny anymore. I can't, he said between heavy sobs. It felt like I was talking to a ghost. Where the heck was he? And that's when it clicked for me. There was only one place that I hadn't checked yet. The air vents. Donnie, are you stuck in the air vent? Through his whimpers, I managed to make out an... Uh-huh. Suddenly, my mind was racing. My first thought was to call the police, but then it hit me. Dad doesn't know about the air vent racing. If he found out, he would have never let it go. Heck, he probably wouldn't let us do anything by ourselves ever again. That left only one option. Hang in there, Donnie. I'm coming to get you. Okay. This was crazy, but what choice did I have? Grabbing a flashlight from my dad's toolbox, I forced my way into the basement's air vent. It was a tight squeeze. I had to ram my body against the sides of the vent in order to stretch it open enough for me to move easily. With the flashlight in my mouth, I started crawling through the vent like a mole, trying my hardest to follow my little brother's cries. They reverberated off the walls so much that it was impossible to tell where they were coming from. Eventually, I found that I had looped back around to the same place that I had started. This was getting nowhere. If my brother was trapped anywhere, it had to be the narrow part of the vent in the center of the house, near the boiler. I went there and shone my flashlight through, but saw nothing. Dang, where was he? I only had a little bit of time before Dad came home, and then I would have to explain the whole thing to him. I tried calling out again. Donnie, where are you? I, I don't know. Great, thanks for the help, Donnie. What room are you closest to? I can't tell, he said. Donnie, listen to the sound of my voice. What direction is it coming from? I don't know, he said. Right, the reverberations. What about before? Right before I came in here, was I close or far away? Um, you were close, I think. Really close. So he was near the basement, but that didn't make any sense. I had already checked out the fence near the basement. He must have been in the upstairs shaft. I'm really sorry, he cried. I could hear his voice echoing from all around me. It was like he was talking to me from every direction. I wanted to crawl through the basement vent to your room, 
so I could jump out and scare you, but then I got stuck. I just wanted to show you that I could crawl through the air vents with no problems. I'm so sorry. His wailing got louder. It was super annoying. Listen, Donnie. I'm going to get you out of here, so stop crying, okay? He must have listened, because he calmed down a little bit after that. But at least he gave me an important clue. His destination. I retraced my steps through the event back to the basement, following the dents that I had made in the sides. And then I proceeded to crawl through the basement vent shaft towards my bedroom. Doing this brought back a lot of memories for me. But at the same time, I remembered why I had stopped. By the time I was on the other side, I was covered in bruises and cuts. And most importantly, I hadn't seen any sign of my little brother. It didn't make any sense. He knew the layout of the vent shaft better than I did. There was no way he would have gotten lost. I called down to him again. Donnie, what route were you using to get to my room? The shortest route, he said. That was the route that I took. I couldn't have possibly missed him. The two of us couldn't even fit in any of the vent shafts together anyway. Was it possible that he knew a shorter route than I did? It seemed hard to believe, but there didn't appear to be very many other possibilities. Begrudgingly, I went back through the vent shaft, this time exploring every path that forked off from the one I believed to be the shortest. When I found myself back in the basement, I turned around to look again. This repeated multiple times, to the point where I even drew up a map to make sure I wasn't missing anything. He just wasn't anywhere. Of course, I hadn't considered the possibility that he might not actually be stuck. Instead, he was lying to make me crawl through the vent a bunch of times as punishment for not racing him today. He could see my flashlight beam to know when to get out of the way in time, and since we had no other way of locating each other, he would be able to avoid me with ease. It was a far-fetched theory, but at this point, it was the only thing that made sense. Hey Donnie, stop being cruel. Just come out of there already. What do you mean? I can't move. His crying started up again, this time louder than ever. It didn't sound like he was lying. Eventually, Dad came home, and I explained everything that had happened. He wasn't nearly as angry as I had expected, and he seemed to agree that my theory was the only possible explanation for everything. He went into his toolbox and grabbed a handsaw, and then looked at me with a smirk. If you won't come out willingly, we'll have to just cut the vent open until he has nowhere left to hide. I wasn't sure if the property damage would be worth a little bit of revenge, but at the same time, my little brother could have left at any time he wanted. So, at the end of the day, he was the one to blame for the damage that was about to be caused.
we went down into the basement again, this time following the underside of the vent shaft to its first cross-section. My dad placed the handsaw on the corner of the vent to start cutting. As soon as he made the first cut, everything went wrong. My little brother started squealing in pain, his voice echoing throughout the entire house. Blood poured down the saw onto Dad's arm. He looked at me in horror and started shouting, Quick, call an ambulance, now! I rushed to the phone, but even as I was dialing the emergency number, I couldn't believe that I had searched so long for my little brother in those air vents and came up empty. While my dad was able to find him on his first try, the irony was too morbid to stomach. When I had returned, I saw that my dad had tried making another cut in the vent to try to reach in and pull him out, only to be met with more blood and more screaming. The two cuts were far enough apart from each other that they couldn't possibly have been both for my little brother, unless he was moving. Stop it! That hurts! He cried. My dad's solution to this was to simply start at the vent grate and keep cutting until he encountered more blood. But even by making a small cut at the entrance, he was met with blood and screams. It defied all common sense. His explanation was that the blood was coming from somewhere in the grate, and that cutting was causing the grate to rattle which was agitating a wound my little brother had acquired at some point earlier. But I knew. And for a moment, I could have sworn the grate entrance looked like a face. Once the ambulances arrived, I was sent back up to my room. Not that it mattered. I could still hear everything from the vent in my room. No matter what room in the house that I was in, I couldn't escape his cries. I'm so thirsty. That's when it dawned on me. There was one thing I still hadn't tried yet. I ran down into the kitchen and filled a big salad bowl with water and then carried it up to my room, being extra careful not to spill anything. I then poured the water down into the vent shaft. Hey Donnie, which way is the water coming from? I listened closely for an answer, but received none. All I could hear were the sounds of someone drinking. Later that night, my grandparents came to pick me up, and I started living at their house. After a couple of days, my dad started living there too. Our old house was quarantined off by the government for a long time, until it was eventually demolished and another house was built right on top of it. Some old neighbors said that they took something away in a big semi-truck, before demolishing the building. And there were a bunch of rumors at school about what had happened. As a teenager, I started having nightmares about my little brother 
being stuck in the air vents in my body, such as my respiratory system, digestive tract, or ear canals. It got to me so much that I started trying to destroy those air vents to make them go away. My dad and grandparents stopped me, and I told them about the nightmares, and they sent me a counseling which I took until I was in my late 30s, when I was finally able to recover. I tried so hard to forget about this past event, but there was one thing that still bothered me. I couldn't work up the courage to ask my dad until he was already on his last legs. But the answer was one that I knew from the very beginning. Dad, why didn't we ever have a funeral for Donnie? He looked at me and smiled weakly. Donnie never died. I knew that already. I could still hear his cries. I looked outside the window in the middle of my flight. All I could see was black static. Written by, not necessarily. I buckled my seatbelt with sweaty hands as the steady hum of the plane engine filled the quiet atmosphere of the cabin. The pilot announced that the plane would launch and soon the gentle g-force pressed into my chest as the plane accelerated. My heart thudded against my chest as I felt the plane lift from the ground. It was an all too familiar sensation of a deep pit in my stomach. I swallowed several times as the plane ascended at a steady rate further and further away from the sweet, solid ground. I had been so nervous and transfixed during the launch that I hadn't even noticed another person had sat down next to me. I quickly recomposed myself and took deep breaths to calm myself down. Visions of the plane crashing flashed in my mind. The flight would be a slow mental torture for hours on end, until I finally, hopefully, safely landed. The young man sitting next to me fiddled with the flight entertainment unit in front of him and looked through their movie catalog. I was impressed with his calm composure but then looked around and realized that everyone else was also relaxed. Was I the only one being paranoid? I looked outside the window for the first time and saw the fluffy white clouds. Being so high up, it made me feel like my stomach was still left back in the ground, but I couldn't help but admire the beauty of the clouds. They were nice, fluffy wisps that looked like cotton candy. I could imagine them as incredibly soft and comfortable. I stared into the window a bit more, but soon looking at these same clouds got incredibly boring. And so, I decided to finally take a look at the screen in front of me, and try to find something to do for the remainder of the flight. While my nerves had subsided for the most bit, I still had that nagging thought at the back of my mind, warning me to be more alert. 
I suddenly saw a sudden movement through the window and my peripheral vision. I whipped my head around as my heartbeat started to rise again and realized that the sky was no longer visible. The gentle blue color of the sky that reminded me of bright mornings by the beach and the pure white color of the clouds was now gone. In place of it was a murky black void that shifted and moved like TV static. The outside world had seemingly disappeared and in place was now an ever-shifting blanket of inky black static. It seemed that I was the first to notice it, but soon I heard more gasps in the cabin and everyone had realized the sudden change. I started to have a panic attack once more and started hyperventilating. I buried my face into my arms and tried to disappear, to somehow get away from this plane, to be back at home safe and sound. Flight attendants came around and were bombarded with questions that they had no answers to. People wanted to know what had happened. A new wave of panic spread over the cabin. The outside stayed the same, just an inky black static. The pilot announced over the speaker system that they had lost communication over radio and that no matter how much they maneuvered the plane, they could not find a way out of this storm. For the next 15 minutes, the cabin was dead silent, except for the steady hum of the plane engine that matched the static outside the window and the occasional whimper of a child. The young man next to me was the first one to get out of his seat and try to make sense of our situation. He walked over to the pilot's cabin, but not soon after he was escorted back to his seat by the flight attendants. The captain announced that he wanted everyone to stay in their seats and that the plane would soon be out of the storm. I checked my phone to note the time and noticed that the time hadn't changed at all. I confirmed this with the digital time on my flight entertainment unit and confirmed that the time hadn't changed for the past 20 or so minutes. I decided to keep this one to myself, as I didn't want to worry anyone else, but it was inevitable that other people would figure out. Soon, the cabin was filled with hushed tones, as people conversed about the absurdity of our situation. It once more felt like everyone had been lulled into a strange sense of security, as nothing had so far happened outside of the cabin. The calmness spread through the whole cabin, and I stared out into the void, not exactly sure what I was looking for. The void shifted slightly constantly, but it remained the same for as long as I stared at it. The void consumed my vision and started to extend into my peripherals, until it felt like the void surrounded me. The hum of the plane engine and the sounds in the cabin no longer existed. It was just me in the void. Suddenly I felt a tap on my shoulder, and I snapped out of it. It was once again the young man next to me. What were you looking at? Just at what's outside, you know. You've been staring for the past 20 minutes. No, man, I just looked into it for like two minutes. 
You're staring at it for a long time for sure. I was puzzled. To me, it felt like I was only staring at it for a solid minute. Yet the young man kept insisting that I had been transfixed on the void. Like a little kid watching his favorite cartoon for a long time. I looked around and noticed that the atmosphere in the cabin had changed as well. Everyone was messing around with their flight entertainment units, not really paying much attention to the void. Suddenly, I heard a woman shout, There's something there! Everyone immediately stopped what they were doing, and shifted their attention to the woman staring out her window into the void. She continued staring while repeating her phrase over and over again, like she was trying to create some sort of demented echo. I need to see it closer. She got out of her seat and headed straight for the doors of the plane. The flight attendants quickly rushed over to her to stop her, but she pushed them out of her way with inhuman strength. Her eyes were glazed over, and she was staring at a point far away. As she opened the plane door effortlessly and jumped out into the black void. There was no pressure drop in the plane as the door was opened. The flight attendants and several passengers walked after the woman to try to save her but it was too late. She had disappeared into the void the second she had stepped in. The flight attendants closed the plane door and everyone was ordered to sit tight in their seats. The windows of the plane were sealed by blinds and a deathly silence overtook the whole cabin. The only sound that occasionally broke the grueling silence was the voice of the only child on the flight. It seemed as if everyone was silently mourning the loss of the woman. A deep dread started to build up in my stomach as I started to think about how I would ever get out of this flight. Minutes turned into hours and hours turned into days. The only thing that we could see outside the window if we pulled the blinds up for a few seconds was the same ever-shifting black void. And every time that I secretly opened the window to see it when the flight attendants weren't looking, it drew me to its beauty. I was mesmerized by that ever-changing, undulating fabric that seemed to be the essence of space-time itself. Time would pass in the blink of an eye when I would stare at it and before I even realized, someone would be tapping me on the shoulder telling me to snap out of it. Food shortages ensued and panic rose as people started to realize that the plane would most likely never make it out of this place. The excess of time gave way to our minds to come up with far-fetched theories on how the plane possibly made it here. It was evident that we had somehow phased out of our reality and ended up in nothingness. By the second or third day, and not that I could keep track of time here, a huge fight erupted in the cabin. It was a trivial matter. A man had reclined his seat and the person behind him didn't like it. At first, it was a lot of arguing before the sounds of smacking filled up the cabin. Everyone watched as the two men beat each other up until one of them fell. 
The flight attendants tried to stop the fight, but they got into it and they were injured as well. The fight didn't ensue for too long, and ended with the flight attendants separating the two men. It was starting to become apparent that the isolation and boredom in the cabin was starting to get to our heads. A long time after that, when the food supplies ran out and everyone was starving, people started to look out of their windows for long, long periods of time. As everyone knew, time would pass by quickly, staring at the immersive black void. Soon after, the pilots walked straight out of the plane. After a long, long time, possibly weeks, a new sound filled the cabin. There were only five people left in the cabin at this point, who hadn't walked straight out of the plane to meet with the void. One of them was a flight attendant while the rest were passengers, including me. It was a high-pitched shriek that made my ears ring. I pulled up the blind from my window and looked out of it. I saw bird-like creatures flying in the void next to us. My heart rate peaked and chills ran down my spine. These creatures were otherworldly. They seemed to be made out of the same black fabric as the void yet stood out in such a way that it seemed as if they had been superimposed on a photo. The static on their skin was much noisier than the static in the black void, and that's what made them stand out. I started to hear powerful thuds on the plane, as the mighty birds attacked the plane. The plane was an imposter in the black void, and it seemed as if the birds had taken it upon themselves to destroy it. The heavy glass of the plane started to crack and shatter as the birds relentlessly banged their long beaks and bodies against the plane. Panic ensued in the cabin as people started to run around and cower in various places of the cabin. I ran to the pilot's quarters to which the door had been left opened. It was this split-second decision that probably saved my life. I observed the cabin through the little peephole in the door. The birds had made their way inside, after breaking through and ripping the walls off the plane like they were paper, and they were starting to shred the people inside the cabin apart as well. It's really hard to describe, but it almost seemed like the black void started to spill inside the cabin like it was a liquid. The plane cabin was absorbed into the black void, and soon all I could see through the people was the same inky black void. The birds started to shriek in a different note as their deep hunger and blood lust had been satisfied. In the blink of an eye, the black void was gone and was replaced by an empty cabin. The plane had somehow repaired itself, but the crew and passengers were all missing. The radio cackled to life. I spoke into the radio and tried my best to not sound like a lunatic while describing what had happened. The flight control helped me safely land the plane at a nearby airport. I cried when I finally made it to the ground. 
I was told that the plane had disappeared off the radar for a split second before reappearing. On the other hand, for me, it felt like I had spent months inside that plane cabin. The black void still comes to haunt me at night. It has become the very essence of my dreams. I wake up sweating after being chased by the same bird-like creatures. Sometimes, when I look into the mirror, I can see the black void surrounding me and leaking into my very being. Many flights disappear every year, and I finally found out why. By the time that you read this, I would have met with the void, but I would like to leave one last warning. Before you board a flight, remember the void.